Welcome to the Learning and Development Podcast. I'm David James from 360 Learning, and each episode I chat with guests about what lights them up in the world of people development. In this episode, I'm speaking with Miriam Neelam, Head of Global Learning Design and Learning Sciences at Novartis. But before we get into it, if you're enjoying this podcast, please do give us a five-star rating on your podcast app of choice to help others to find us, and thank you if you've done so already. Now, let's get into it. Miriam, welcome to the Learning and Development Podcast. Hello, David. Thank you for having me. Uh, now, Miriam, when we spoke in preparation for this conversation, I asked you what you were passionate about in L&D, and you mentioned the phrase, standing on the shoulders of giants. What did you mean by this? I mean that I think we should use um, the researchers who have contributed key theories and evidence to, um, you know, to help us understand more around how people learn, but also what that means for how we should design. Mm. So I think we should become more knowledgeable about these giants so that we can see that when we come up with some new bandwagon or innovation, you know, you can't see this on the podcast, but <laughs> what's this called again? I'll quote marks. <laughs> quote marks. We, we can understand that this is actually, you know, old wine in new bottles. And mm. sometimes it's even worse than the, than the old wine. You know, like, so that's why I think that's important. Yeah, I agree. I I, I think uh, learning about uh, learning and development today is very different to, to how I did. Uh, I, I can tell you uh, that, uh, that in the late 1990s, um, I when I decided I wanted to be a trainer, uh, I went down to the uh, to the library and I found a book on uh, further and adult education, thinking, well, this is this is going to be a, a little window into it. Uh, and I must say that that was my Bible for a couple of years. That's all I had. So uh, so I so I um, uh, uh, looked to, to swat up on uh, on what this new profession was, how people acted, uh, perhaps uh, some of the origins of it. And that helped me to become a better trainer. But I can't I can't imagine now. What it what it must be like in the, in a social media age, um, be it where there are so many competing views um, and uh, and posts uh, and uh, and people trying to seek attention uh, to influence the way that uh, that we do this. But uh, but I suppose like one benefit of it is that uh, that all you got to do is follow somebody like Guy Wallace um, for uh, for for five yeah. minutes and realize that that there have been trailblazers in our profession for decades. That my little red book, <laughs> a thick red book in the nineteen nineties didn't allude to because i was uh, because uh, I, I was studying a different profession i think uh, with further education rather than corporate learning um but uh, but uh, it was a it was perhaps not so much a minefield before because there weren't a lot of mines but it's certainly a, a minefield now uh, is, i mean what what's been your own journey uh, to to this point um as far as uh, as far as uh, finding your way with the the and uh, these giants and who we should listen to yeah, so my 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 initial journey was as a speech therapist, and um, I I, had, I did a master's in psycholinguistics before I I did speech therapy, so I had kind of had this academic uh, you know background, and um, I've also always asked a lot of why questions uh, generally in my life, but when when I was a speech therapist, I was very frustrated by the fact that at that point. Uh, and I know it has improved ever since because this was like a hundred years ago. Um, 
the practice of speech therapy was not evidence-based whatsoever. Mm. And I was very frustrated by that. And I, I thought like, this is just not right. You know, we're just mm. doing things based on our beliefs, based on our perceptions. There were like really good examples where we would, you know, you would treat a child for a long time. And then most therapists would think that a child had made progress. Mm. But we did like these video feedback sessions with peers. And then if you use these videos to compare and contrast, sometimes you could see that after two years, nothing had changed. Mm. And so, you know, people were just making a lot of decisions based on their own perceptions of what, how they perceive, you know, the child and you get to know a child better. So it becomes easier to communicate with a child. So therefore you think the child made progress, but that's not fair to the child because, you know, it's about having a chance to communicate with others, not just with your therapies. Right. Mm. So, so that was my frustration. And then I, I did like uh, some attempts to, um, to get up to speed on the evidence, but it was just at that point, not really a lot of interest in it yet, uh, in the field. So, um, I quit and, um, I started to study learning sciences after, you know, I did a lot of work to decide what I was going to do. Cause I thought, oh dear, this is going to be my third, uh, study. So I better make it worthwhile. Um, but that's, you know, where I got, I started with, you know, learning about learning theory and um, instructional design theory and the models like Dick and Carey, uh, the work of uh, Laurier or however you pronounce that, and um, the 10 steps to complex uh, learning. And we also had to like do a lot of project work applying, you know, and also like needs analysis and all that stuff. Mm. So I was just aware that there was a lot of research out there. Although I must admit, when I started to work as an instructional designer and I did a lot of e-learning development, you know, I also had to learn a lot about the practice, right? Which is another side of the story. So I also did fall into traps like, you know, I was like a 70-20-10 believer. Um, mm -hmm. And I always thought that adults were good at self-directed learners and, and that kind of thing. But, and I think it was mostly when I started working with Paul, so that was about six years ago when I really started to realize like, oh, there is so much out there that we can use. Mm. And that was really frustrating, of course, because now I know what I don't know and I don't know how to catch up because there's so much <laughs> to know. <laughs> yeah, but that's um, that's where the whole idea of, you know, the evidence informs for me really kicked in. About, mm. Yeah, six years ago. So what do you think is missing then, Miriam? If, uh, if you know, um, because I'm a big believer people enter learning and development for 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 good reason I mean uh, there's there's uh, I mean it's a, it's a it could be a critical role within in in any organization you're you're helping people to become better at their their current jobs to feel better about their work uh, to improve uh, to improve their chances of uh, of progression both inside the company and the prospects as far as a career is concerned so there's a lot of good intent around yeah. But there is also a hell of a lot of naive practice because we've all been to school and so we all think we know how learning works. Um, but there is a big gap between uh, the positive endeavour and uh, evidence, data and evidence-based practice. Um, so what, what is it we are missing if we are just entering with best endeavour and not with a grounding in 
in science and in evidence. You mean what is causing this? That no, what's missing? So, so if we say that that you know we've we've got we've got great trainers, we've got we've got uh, who can hold a room, we've got um, uh, capable instructional designers who can create entertaining and interesting content, but they're not au fait with with some of the influences that uh, the you know the giants that uh, the of the of the field, the pioneers who've already done the studies and uh, uh, and uh, and have got the badges. What's what's missing if uh, if we if we if we don't fully appreciate what's gone before? So what's missing then is that if I mean if you don't have any knowledge around you know what is out there, what's the history, you know what is how did things evolve, how did theories build upon each other then it it becomes really hard to find focus right and that's what i that's what i see mm. um and that's my biggest frustration because an, an an example is that you know what you see now as a as kind of like a trend is that people bring neuroscience into the mix right so we we there is some interesting you know neuroscientific research and then you know it's it's about i don't know dopamine or, or whatever and then people leap to practice, like, so they leap from like, I don't know, a study on rats to like human behavior and then to what that means for our design practice. Mm. And yes, it's interesting to understand, you know, this type of research and to, I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. I'm, I'm fascinated by it myself, but it doesn't help us to find the focus that we need. And to me, the focus is A, why are we here? Like, why do we exist in an mm. organization? We exist to help people do their jobs better so that the business can get better results. And if we do it really well, then we also help people to have a job in the future uh, and, and ideally have a job that they enjoy, mm. right? Although I think that's a very Western elite kind of way to think about it, to be honest. Mm. Um, so that's one thing. Like, why are we here? Then the second thing is, where do we really need to focus our energy as learning and development? So do we really need all this content that we hammer out? Do we really need to make it all look slick? And, you know, do we need to use storyline to develop it? Or can it be just a very simple? So where do we need to focus our design? But to me, what's most important is if you understand what the, the the research tells us about how we learn, then it helps you to find focus as in what is the type of need that I'm dealing with here. And just a very simple example, if it is a knowledge need, and if it is something that people need to remember because they need to use it every day and because it might be quite, quite complicated to, to, to remember and then to be able to use it, well, then you need to focus on space learning. As an example, if it's just something that people can access, well, then you can get away with performance support. Okay, what type of performance support? Is it a rule-based thing? Is it like an if-then thing? Or is it more like a systematic approach, you know, support thing? Mm -hmm. So making these distinctions, I don't see that happening in any organization that I have worked in. People just go, they, you know, they stick at a very high level mm -hmm. and then they design like the skills trend is a really good example for me like nowadays and it kind of makes me laugh and super frustrated at the same time like why is this such a trend suddenly like what mm. have we been doing all these years if it wasn't about upskilling people 
And then my question is, why are we, if we really believe that skills are so critical, why is nobody talking about task analysis? Yeah. Why is nobody talking about cognitive task analysis? As long as we don't put uh, like the effort into understanding what this skill really looks like in practice and what it takes for people to learn it, then why are we talking about it so yeah. much? We don't care in the end. We don't want to invest the time and energy. We want everything quick and dirty because we don't have time. Mm. Well, then don't do it. Do it, do it well, or don't do it. That would be my, we talk too much. Yeah. She said after just ranting on. <laughs> well, well like... I, I wonder, Miriam, like you, you say that, uh, that, um, uh, that, that, that we don't look back to see who might have done this work before because a lot of the time we're too busy navel gazing. Uh, we, we're too busy looking at ourselves. I mean, that, that's a really critical point that you've raised there, that, that, that there is all this talk about um, uh, upskilling and reskilling and there are, and there are reskilling platforms like it's a new thing, like learning and development are brand new to this role. The, th the fact is that we've shown up again to a party that we've been at for 30, 40, 50 years and said, hey, look, I've got a new dress on. But but we were here the whole time. And and the whole upskilling and reskilling didn't work with generic platforms filled full of content or or off-the-shelf programs uh, that were delivered to be interactive. But look, because we didn't do the analysis, to your point before, we didn't do the task analysis. We haven't done the cognitive task analysis. We haven't sought to understand the jobs or the challenges faced by the people. But we've isolated a skill set and we've made it really fun and we'll deliver yeah. this and it'll work this time because we've got uh, because we've got the same old content. It's prettier and more interactive. We've got the same old content, but now we're going to serve it up to you in a different way. It is bananas. It is, you know, there, there is this, this, there's, uh, my next question was going to be around, like, um, you know, we, we seem to resist analysis, but be susceptible to marketing by people who have never done learning yeah. and development uh, and, and ignore pioneers in our field who have been doing this work again i'll mention uh, uh guy wallace uh, who references regularly his mentors uh, guy uh, is a great example of someone is. who is standing on the shoulders of giants right he is, and yeah that's the word like daily and and it's fantastic yeah so 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 he references his mentors from from the 1960s and 1970s who formed solid foundations for his work to up to this day and so much of it is around analysis but but it goes back to my 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 question we seem to have a blind spot for this in learning and development and a susceptibility to clever marketing i.e. Uh, we we now need a skills platform when it when when what was offered didn't work for the last 30 years why do you think this is? Yeah, so I think that it's kind of like a million dollar question, but I see a lot of elements there. That, and this is just kind of like speculation or based on my experience, because I don't really have like strong evidence. But one of the things I think is that we don't have any entry level standards for people entering learning and development, right? I have literally seen job descriptions saying, you know, for a learning and development role, you don't need to know anything about learning as long as you love learning. Mm. I mean, isn't that like pathetic? That is just yeah. completely ridiculous. Which other field would do something like that? Mm. So that's one thing. So people enter the field with, as you said, the best intentions and with passion and enthusiasm and sometimes with a lot of subject matter expertise in a certain domain, right? Which is fantastic and which is what you also need to design uh you know, I, I've recently worked with uh, a person in my 
organization who is like a sales specialist. And I mean, if you collaborate, then that's that's fantastic, right? Like mm. and he's learning along the way. I'm learning about you know his stuff. So anyway, that's one thing. There's no entry level, so that that um, ha- as a consequence, like we end up with you know a group of practitioners who are not really professionals. Mm. So that's that's and that therefore, I think that has kind of like a snowballing effect, as in. Therefore, they're not really able to have the right conversations with stakeholders, which is then why we're still stuck in kind of like an order taking Mm. um, situation because we don't have the capabilities to really explain to our stakeholders why things need to be done in a certain way. And I see this like, again, in all the organizations I've worked in, people really frustrated around not being able to, to convince their stakeholders. And then, you know, complaining about that. And then when, when you listen to the conversations, like, I get why your stakeholders don't buy into this because it really doesn't, you, you're coming in from the r- wrong end of the spectrum. They're coming in with micro learning is really important because X, Y, Z, not this is what you're trying to achieve. This is what you're asking for and showing people, showing your stakeholders why there's a gap between what they want to achieve and what they're asking for. Mm-hmm. And there's also a sudden, I don't know if it's laziness or, or just like an 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 unawareness. As in, I think what we need to do, given the state that we're in, if if your clients come to you with a solution in mind, um, don't tell them that that's not the way to do it and that we have to do more analysis. And this I actually learned from Guy Wallace. He yeah. he because because I would have challenged my stakeholders in the past. I don't really do that anymore. I challenge my peers, but not my my business stakeholders. Mm. And then what I, I think we need to do is you need to analyze what they ask for. And then, you know, they send you all the content. You need to go through the content step by step. And you need to try to map it to what they ask for. You need to kind of visualize it for them and and then have the conversation like, look, this is the skill you mentioned. Mm. This is what it's would look like as a hierarchy or, or, you know, the relationship between things, is it knowledge, skill, attitude, everything. And then this is the content that you gave me. I can map this to here, map this to there, this to there. I still don't really see how these pieces are connected. These are Mm. the conversations I have with my stakeholders. And that's, I mean, yes, of course it takes time to build relationships and whatever, but yeah. And then also another thing is that we don't measure yeah. So we can prove. And um the ad tech industry is also a problem we have, I think. Yep. Just throw that into the mix. Um because, no, I, yeah, that's the same problem. People who don't know anything about learning and are really good at marketing. Yeah. Right. So I think maybe that sums it up what you said at the very mm. beginning. Maybe you didn't need my <laughs> it is okay, we don't have enough knowledge about learning, but we do know mm. do a lot with marketing. Yeah. Well, I I want to come back. I'll come back to the stakeholder part um, um shortly because I think that, that is that's absolutely critical that 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 often we we supply what we're asked for, but I want to take a few steps back because uh, you mentioned before about uh, about uh, entry into into learning and development, and I do think that we've got a problem with educating our. But maybe maybe there's a little bit about identity, but there's also a little bit about how we 
um, we train or the expectations set on people coming into our field. Like, well, first of all, I think the language you use is fantasy. Like we, um, we deliver or provide learning. Which of course is fantasy. It's it's yeah. like it's like it, we may as well be unicorn riders, like with what that is, because because we cannot deliver or provide learning. We can provide stuff that might help to learn, that but again, going back to what you said before, yeah. which is helping people to do the jobs that they are in now and prepare them within our organization so that they are more capable to do other stuff that the organization needs is a realistic perspective of what we do but we've got caught up on this we deliver or we provide learning and then we go down the rabbit holes of it losing complete sight of helping people to do the actual jobs they're in organizations to do to to focus on uh, brain friendly learning accelerated learning interactivity in um uh, uh in into e-learning we believe that the the problems what some of the biggest problems we face is lack of learner engagement and all of this because we've we've followed a path down our job is provide learning and if it's broken we need to explore that there and we've gone so far from it i hope we say to people that when you i get ask the question on conferences and stuff all the time you go how do you get people engaged in learning and development my question is how have you how have you gotten disengaged it's really easy you've got to give them what they need when they need it right it's really really simple but they determine when they actually need it not us so so google and, and youtube have been providing us with this wonderful experiment for the last 15 years or so and what it turns out is when people are super motivated to look something up then they'll go find it but you've got to make it really easy for them to find it the only problem is google and youtube have got no none of the context of your organization department or roles so if you were to write if you were to start again you'd stop with the fantasy we don't provide or deliver any learning and then work much harder on what is it that we need our organization uh, what do we need in our organization for our people to do and what's stopping them from doing that thing there and then build up so you, you've mentioned before there was there's an element of performance uh, within there uh, there's a little bit about about capability there's some stuff about just helping people to do the right stuff at the right time but but if you frame the actual problems and and going you know you you were talking about evidence from one perspective from a research perspective earlier but there's also the evidence within an organization when oh, there's a critical yeah. point of failure within an operation which means that you're losing money you're losing customers you're losing people um that uh, that there's inefficiency that's stopping people from from achieving service level uh, uh, um, agreements uh, or um, uh, customer satisfaction, all of the stuff that an organization is actually there to achieve. And then the evidence of the people who are expected to achieve that, then that opens up a whole new level of awareness. You couple that with the evidence of what works in terms of learning theory. And then you've got this secret source of actually predictably and reliably helping people to do the things they're in organizations to do. But as, as we mentioned before, it's so much more appealing to buy a silver bullet that serves up, that goes, takes us down this provision of learning route and this problem that is almost uh, uh, emanated from learning and development's inability to understand the actual reason that it's in an organization. Uh, yeah, and it's also place. one of the reasons there is, I think, that because we work very much in a in a silo, right? Mm. Like we might work with 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 HR business partners and stuff like that, but and and of course with the business stakeholders, but we don't really work in like uh, and this uh, actually I I I um, have have stolen a bit from uh, Danny Seals, 
who who thinks about it more as in you need to work with problem analysis teams and then with problem solving teams mm. because i mean what we do is we as you said like we think we are about we, we are about learning so therefore we should deliver learning mm. but sometimes you know you need to say this doesn't need learning so you need to do act so another area of expertise maybe a systems thing, thing or, or process thing or an incentives thing or whatever or you need to work together and say what are we trying to solve here what is the opportunity we have here okay this is a holistic thing so you need mm. to solve it holistically or at least partner as in so that you understand from each other who's solving what mm. you know and also, when it comes to the whole, I think the whole learner engagement thing is a bit flabbergasting to me in the sense that, of course, I mean, it depends on how you define engagement. Mm. But to me, you don't need the word engagement. It's more about relevance. Um, well, that's basically it. <laughs> relevance. <laughs> Maybe point of need. Yeah, so, that's it. Timely. Yeah. And, and, and I think also we have a tendency to think about things in only one way. So, for example, mm. you just mentioned you know, if people are motivated, they will come. Mm. That's true. However, that's only one part of the motivation, right? Now, yeah. how, how how do we need to help people to persist? Mm. So these are different things. Or maybe they're not motivated because they're not aware of something. Yeah. So, but that, again, it's all analysis. Yeah. Because, because you need to understand what you're dealing with. And, in yeah. Why are we not doing the analysis, David? Um, <laughs> I, I, you know, I think I think that's a great question. There's a, a, you know, there, there's a little bit about um, uh, stakeholders, which we we could come to in a moment, because a lot of the time we have stakeholders with strong opinions themselves, and I think a lot of the time, by the time a stakeholder is talk spoken is speaking to us, they've already sold training to their team um, because because they've been um, educated to do so. Um, uh, a lot. Everyone's been on a course. Um, I'd say that that most people have been on a course that they felt was particularly influential. I, I mean, I've had stakeholders um, say to me in previous um, uh, roles, uh, "I'd like a training course." I went on this training course once, and there was this brilliant bit on well-being. I'd like that included. Yeah. And you'd be going, and you'd be saying, "What's the purpose of this?" I just want people to feel better. No, all right, okay. You know, you're, like we've we've gone way down it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, we've gone way down a path of um, uh, of solutioneering that uh, without uh, really understanding the the problem. Yeah, but but I have like what what I've learned. Uh, maybe it's because I'm I'm getting really old. Or, mm. But I think, I mean, asking of the perp about the purpose is one way of doing it. But I think mm. what you can also do is really dig deeper into why they're so hung up on this thing, right? Because yeah. sometimes there is something behind it that then you can latch on to and you can say, okay, that makes sense in the context of what you're trying to achieve. This mm. maybe not so much, but that bit, I don't know if it needs to be a, you know, a well-being uh, lecture or a video or whatever, mm. but that element is really important to keep in mind for what you're trying to achieve, right? Yeah. I don't know. I I started to see my job uh, and it's slightly different in the role that I have today. But in my previous um, job, I was always joking that all I did all day, every day was pulling people back to, okay, what are you trying to achieve? Yeah. To what extent does this help you get there? Constantly, constantly. I w I've been in a, in a conversation with a stakeholder. I will never forget. We had already designed the damn solution 
And I was on this call presenting it and he starts changing the learning objectives. Mm. He starts changing what he was trying to achieve. So I said, can I just ask <laughs> just for next time? Mm. Can we agree on what you're trying to achieve before we go? Yeah. <laughs> well, I think so, so many stakeholders' um, desires are because they want people to feel better. Uh, and but, but I think that, uh, that that like you, that the more um, the more mature I became within my role within learning development, the more comfortable I felt to have those conversations. What which which you know, so 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 the way it usually happens, I, I mean everyone will recognize you're called you're called in by a stakeholder who says, I'd like some training, I'd like it to include this, I'd like it next month, I'd like all the team to be involved. Um, and I'd say 20% of the time when you when you ask a question around what we'd like it to achieve, they look at you with a kind of sort of glint in their eye and they go, I don't really, I just want them to come together. And I always say that that's 20%. And do you know what? That's fine, but don't spend a lot of money and time on it. You could, you could do something quite fun and you could pull out some, uh, some, uh, some, uh, something that reveals something about the group or individuals and they love it. They go away. It's like a conga, like a, a, a wedding uh, that everybody knows the dance. They grab hold of the person in front, they kick their leg and they feel great afterwards, but nobody is changed as a result. But yeah. then 80% of people, when you ask the question, what do you want to achieve? They look at you and go, oh, weren't expecting that. But they, they're actually really quite delighted that they are. But then, so then you have a conversation and you use some probing questions to find out um, what's not happening, uh, what what should be happening instead? Who specifically is responsible for this work and the outcomes? And they are enlightened. That conversation enlightens them. Uh, I've been I've been in uh, in discovery sessions with whole groups of, uh, of people, like so established middle managers, who you you have this conversation over the form of a couple of hours, and 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 really it's just discovery to find out their experience. And no word of a lie, somebody on the way out shook my hand and went, "This is the best training course I've ever been on," <laughs> and it wasn't. It was just a discovery <laughs> session. But but you're doing a, a lot of the stuff that people enjoy most. You're asking them for their opinion. Everyone's yeah. kind of sharing um, and and doing that that bit that they love at the end of the course. What was the bit that you enjoyed most? Oh, you know, time away from work, talking with uh, yeah, with peers, meeting say, people from across David, the business. We are here to make people. Yeah. <laughs> so so I'd say that eighty percent of the time you've got to, your stakeholder has simply asked for help in the way that they expect they deal with you, and then they are pleasantly surprised that this could actually achieve results with them which Not i didn't always pleasantly though no I, I don't know i don't know if this is because i'm a woman but i've had like when i was asking that question can you mm. tell me what you're trying to achieve the answer was oh miriam you don't need to worry about it you're training oh wow <laughs> no <laughs> and i was like well mm, yeah you know, i would like to help you in a way that is useful and in order to be able to do that i do need to understand a bit more around what you're trying to achieve yeah that's right and <laughs> go back to uh, to an earlier point when when learning and development doesn't fully understand what they're in organizations to do sometimes there's a massive misunderstanding from stakeholders what learning and development is there to do especially when we position position ourselves as a perk or a benefit within an organization and as soon as we get into hours and uh, of training and bums on seats and and all of that that stuff as as part of our evp then we're a perk and a benefit not uh, a, a serious um uh business function uh, yeah. because i mean a good example of that is sebastian tindall i i, I can't get enough listening to him he, he's a director of learning and development at vitality uh, oh, because yeah. because he he uh, um 
uh, he does the analysis. He understands what's there to uh, to be affected, and then will uh, once running a project, he will determine the success of that by whether it worked or not. Because he does that part, he then looks at how less less time he pulls paper, people away from the work, which of course is is a which which is a core business metric. How efficient can you be in achieving the outcome? Oh, but when learning and development aren't aware or don't believe that we can actually achieve an outcome or or think that that learning is is the outcome in itself, then what we do is we position ourselves as well. The more's the better. Yeah, exactly. And that is that that is actually um I think another thing that needs uh fixing on both sides, both mm. like the business and uh learning and development, because because we think we're in the business of delivering learning. We, as you said, feel like the more we do it, the more we, we are proving our value, which mm. is completely not the right way to think about it, if you ask me. And then the other side of the business is the people that they put in charge to, you know, drive learning and uh, or capability building, they are often incentivized around completion and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, bumps and seats and stuff like that. And because they are often very worried around, you know, yeah, people are not completing it or not coming or they're coming and they're, they're dropping out and you need to help me to let them come back. And I said, well, maybe, you know, we can do some user research first to understand why they're not coming back because they might have challenges that we're not aware of. And But that way of thinking is also not something that's like very, uh, what's the word, prevalent in the mm. business where they really think about, okay, is this really what people need to achieve what we think they need to achieve? Mm. And if they're not achieving it, then what's getting in the way instead of, oh, but I have now invested X amount of money in this trading. So it better be successful and I better am able to show that people are completing my shiny thing. Mm. You know, the thing that makes me visible in the organization. Mm. Yeah, which is, again, is an uh, important factor. So let's 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 uh, let's have some fun here, uh, Miriam. Let's uh, let's um, play with some of the stuff that we've learned from uh, from the uh, the giants here, because as we've spoken about here, uh, there's something there's something about learning and development feeding the beast. If we think our role is providing learning and delivering learning, then the analysis we do is what learning do you want, right? So we do a learning needs analysis, so which is our which is our wish list for all the learning that uh, and uh, experiences and content that you want, and then we measure it on satisfaction. So you asked for this. We did this. How happy were you? Yeah. But, but on the other side, which we, which um, I think time and experience really teaches you, is that stakeholder management is probably the cornerstone of uh, of learning and development, rather than the delivery or the provision of learning. Uh, so there are different types of conversations that you'll gear towards, whether this is. Um, just something to make people feel good or that you're actually here to make a demonstrable difference. If it's a demonstrable difference, then we need to understand what specifically what we're trying to fix so you can get data seek the evidence of the people that we're uh, uh, that we we want to uh, help to develop and then we look back on evaluation to see whether we've had a positive uptick or not on what we took as data now we've got two very very different roles there yeah. if we are to stand on the shoulders of giants truly what's it got to take to get from one that doesn't really matter, that simply fulfills the expectations, but doesn't achieve anything, which is probably a money pit as well. What's that, what's that, I mean, recent figures are saying it's $300 billion a year globally on stuff that helps to make people feel good. And then you've got the uh, analysis, stakeholder management, running experiments, 
and then holding themselves accountable for actual change on the other side. But, you know, that's harder to do. It's harder to sell. And you know what? The market uh, of vendors doesn't can't really do that um, uh, because it has to happen in inside organizations. So what is it we've got to do to, to, to get to the right place? And so I'm trying to think now, because when I when I think about this question, it is about uh, our own capability. Right? Yeah. So when I think about the shoulders of giants, the way to think about this for me is the research around complex skills. Mm. So what what does the skill like? I don't even know. It's probably not one skill, but but if, like stakeholder management is not a separate skill mm. it's it's an enabling skill yeah so so there are a couple of enabling skills i think so the stakeholder management then when you think about the skills hierarchy is then and the stakeholder management to be competent in that there are a couple of enabling skills which is and knowledge and, and attitudes so that's why it's a complex skill but one is the knowledge Mm-hmm. around how people learn well that should come actually later but the first one is around performance consulting and performance analysis right mm-hmm. and maybe a bit of systems thinking as well um so so yeah we need to think more holistically and we well even okay because this is what i struggle with i don't necessarily think that everybody in learning and development needs to be able to do the performance consulting bit well, because I think mm. we also need to become more smarter around what types of expertise do we need to do to run learning and development mm. effectively. So we can have performance consultants in our, our groups. We can have um, people who really know a lot about how people learn and how to design for learning in case the performance consultant has identified that it does need a learning solution mm-hmm. and then so that's the knowledge the skill of course is is also in you know the whole managing relationships communication collaboration all that stuff mm-hmm. but again those are all enabling skills to get to the stakeholder management so to me i think the two main components are analysis like performance consulting uh, and, and learning analysis in case learning is, is part of the solution, mm. stakeholder management, and then the design phase, which is around prototyping and testing, you know, co-creating and partnering. And I do think I that's something I changed my mind on because I was always like, why would you do that? Like, you know, we are supposed to be the experts. Mm. However, in my experience, when you partner with various stakeholders, you just, get a better solution because you understand better like what what is needed in the in reality of people's jobs and the reality of the business so mm. i think that is important as well and then there's of course yeah the part i'm personally not that's not my area of expertise but the whole deployment part of things and the whole like portfolio management part of things you know that's all really critical as well mm to make sure that you don't spend too much money on things that you already have or to invest strategically and to help you identify, okay, this is where we need to focus our energy this year and not on all these other things that also sound interesting but are not that important for the business at this point. Yeah, I can go on and on and on, but there's just some key elements in there that we need to put in place. And Mm -hmm. some organizations do that. I mean, we have a great person 
on on the portfolio side of things, which I think can fix a lot if you can get that process right. Mm. Uh, and so, Miriam, as we we look to wrap up the uh, the conversation and going back to uh, uh, to the, the 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 core of this this conversation here, um, what advice would you give to the listener um, so that they can stand on the shoulders of giants, so they can uh, start to appreciate the work of the pioneers that have come before us, uh, before us, that will also help us not to be sucked in by fads and silver bullets as well. And perhaps you can you can share with us uh, some key people that that you listen to, um, perhaps on social media or, or within our field that uh, that 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 perhaps would shed some uh, some light on the on the the pioneers that come before. Yeah. So one of I want I want to recommend one book. Hmm which is called How Learning Happens by uh, Kirchner and Hendrik. And the, the reason I'm recommending that is because that discusses like key, key, like classic research articles that everybody should know about. And when you are aware of these articles, you will start to recognize fairly quickly how a lot of other work that's go- going on is related to, to that work mm. and how things are connected. So that's one uh, thing. Then I would recommend to follow and read work of people such as, um, I think following Guy Wallace is is a great suggestion in the sense that he really helps you focus on the right things. Mm -hmm. I know he constantly talks about performance improvements and uh, not necessarily learning. He talks about that as well, but it's Mm -hmm. not the core of what he talks about. And he talks about giants. Such as Joe Harless from the top yeah, of that's it, yeah. Gary Rumler, yeah. You reckon, yeah. Uh, well, Paul Kirchner, of course, he's, he's just my partner in crime, and and he's, I think, he's just so knowledgeable and so following him. Although he might be a bit more focused on education, but mm. you know, maybe things in our blog. Donald Clark, I think, is highly knowledgeable in many areas. Um, well worth. Um, following and, and reading his book on learning experience design and mm-hmm. uh, AI in learning. Jane, Jane Bozart, I think, is doing great work for the Learning Guild. Her research reports, I think, are really good. Patty mm-hmm. Shank does a lot of great research to practice translation. Will Salheimer does that as well, but he also has a lot of, you know, like the, his LTEM model and Smilesheet work and a lot of like practical things that are based on research that you can use. Mm. Uh, Connie Malamed and Mike Taylor, I think they are, you know, they share, Mike Taylor shares a lot around tools as well, but I think in the way that it's really useful and, uh, and practical and, and Connie Malamed also does a lot of interesting work around learning sciences based on learning sciences. Um, I have Helen Blunden. She, mm-hmm. she focuses a lot of community. Well, she, she, uh, she, uh, stopped using social media. So that might be a bit hard to follow her. <laughs> um, and then I would read it. So read these, read the book, how learning happens. Read, you know, follow the people and read their work that I just mentioned. But then also mm-hmm. m- like when you run into stuff on social media, read, listen, watch through a certain lens. So make mm-hmm. a distinction between research that's actually asking leaders on their opinion 
Mm -hmm. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's just not, we call that research and it is, of course, a certain level of research, but it's not a very high quality level of research. So you yeah. need to keep that in mind. These are just people's opinion. Mm -hmm. That's another thing. And pseudoscience, keep an eye out for that. Like the whole, what I said about neuroscience, you know, be careful with making leaps and big mm -hmm. claims and nice looking numbers. Um and then the last thing I want to say is you can apply what um, it's Daniel Willingham's steps. So it's originally designed to spot myths, but you can also use it to kind of think about the quality of, of a post or a video or whatever. And it is strip it and flip it. So what is this actually saying? Could I flip it? Like, could the opposite be, you know, could if I flip it, could it be true then as well? Mm -hmm. And then trace it. What's the original source? Yeah. And then analyze it. What's the data behind this? If you look at posts that way, it's very easy to spot the stuff that's actually, meh. I wouldn't say bullshit necessarily, but it's going in that direction and at least it's way too strong of what it actually uh, is, you know, too strong for what it's actually... Um, what is actually true mm. yeah so that's what i would say people sh could start doing wonderful there's some uh, some solid advice uh, in there miriam and of course you're a prominent voice on social media yourself so how best can people follow you people can follow me on twitter my twitter handle is miriam n m i r j a m n <laughs> wonderful i'll put a link in the uh in the show notes but, yeah, uh, but... and then i'm on linkedin and of course our blog on three star learning experiences. oh fabulous i'll put some links in the show notes um uh, but miriam uh always left for me to say is thank you very much for being a guest on the learning and development podcast well thanks for having me i really enjoyed the conversation i've been around l d long enough to see things come in and out of fashion and for the same mistakes to be made over and over but we need to find ways of building on the work of those who've come before and not reinventing it. Perhaps less fad following and more analysis. If this conversation has whet your appetite for good quality L&D chat and you'd like to get involved, you can now join the L&D Collective of which I'm an active member. Join me and hundreds of L&D peers via the link to the L&D Collective in the show notes. And if you'd like to get in touch with me, perhaps to suggest topics you'd like to hear discussed, you can tweet me at David in Learning and connect on LinkedIn again, and you'll find the links in the show notes. Goodbye for now.